0: Hey, we're in a series called Family Values right now as a church. If you're visiting with us today, you want to know what's going on, you can see from the values. We're looking at the nine values we believe God uh, is teaching us about as a church uh, family. And so we're talking about what, what God is calling us at Cherry Hills here. If you're a part of this church family, these are the values we want to emulate. And so just to get our juices flowing a little bit about our church this morning, some of you might not be able to answer this, but I want to give you a pop quiz, okay? So just turn to the person around you or next to you and see if you can answer this. This question, no worries, it's just a one-question pop quiz, so you don't have to get nervous or anything. But here's the question. How many ministers do we have at Cherry Hills? Turn to your neighbor and try to answer that question. All right. How many of you said five? Seven? Seven? Six, eight? What if I told you the answer is somewhere around 1,400? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Good job, Gil. At least that's how it's supposed to be. That is how God designed his church to be. But, of course, that's not how it has always been, is it? We still have to get used to that. I know I've shared with you before I grew up as a pastor's kid. And I grew up in an era where my dad was essentially super pastor. Like, he was expected to do everything, and I'll I'll read you the list. He mowed the lawn of our church. He set up the church. He preached three times a week. He cleaned the bathrooms. He printed the bulletins. He visited everyone who was sick. And then, of course, he was also, on top of all those things, expected to be a husband and a father uh, to three children. And the truth is, my dad, the church, and our family suffered as a result of that. I grew up in a time in the church's history where it basically functioned like this. The priest or the pastor was expected to do everything and the people in the church were expected to simply come, yeah, you better give your money, but receive. That was the role of the people. We just receive the ministry done by the professionals. Uh, Michael Jordan tells a great story of this actually. When he came out of retirement, you know, he went back to the Washington Wizards and Doug Collins was the coach there and they started having practices and scrimmages there as a team and what they noticed is that everybody would just stand around waiting for Michael Jordan to do everything. Like his teammates couldn't believe, I'm playing basketball with Michael Jordan, right? And so they instituted this rule where Jordan was no longer allowed to shoot. They didn't tell his teammates about it. And so the first scrimmage when this rule is instituted, they got, Jordan just keeps passing the ball to these guys. And they're like, what are you doing? And they realize, oh, he's not going to shoot. We better get involved in the game here. And so they started doing their part. And I love what Jordan said after this. He said, I quote, everybody wants to sit back and watch. But one reason why we became successful in Chicago was we had to play as a unit instead of just watching. What makes me more effective is other guys stepping up and being a threat. If I'm the only threat, then I'm doing all the work. And obviously, that's not how you win. Sadly, I believe that mentality, though, has carried its way into many churches where people come to church as spectators watching the professionals do the work of ministry. Yet, would it surprise you if I told you that nowhere in the New Testament does it say that God designed his church to function that way? Nowhere does it say that it was left up to just a few super pastors to carry on the work of the church. In fact, there's no such thing as a super pastor because there's no one person. There is no one individual who could possibly have all the gifts necessary to make the church function the way God designed it to function. If you're following on your notes this morning, in God's design of the church, we are all ministers. Hence my trick question this morning. We're all ministers. If you're a part of our church family, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a minister. And this is why it's the seventh value in our series on values here as a church. In fact, let's just turn over our notes there. Can we read this value out loud together there? Let's start with the value and then we'll read the definition. The value says, we value every person serving. Because Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve, and he's given every believer spiritual gifts to glorify God and edify others, we want to give our lives away in his name. Now here's the good news. I think we actually are entering into a time in the church's history. I have even heard some people call it the New Reformation, where the church is beginning to reclaim this truth. That it's not just one or two people doing the works of ministry, the professionals. That it's, it's the whole body of Christ coming together, every person serving. So I'm excited about that. And there are a few things I get as passionate about this, probably because of my history of growing up with a super pastor. But I just want to say right up front this morning, until we realize as a church and until you realize as an individual that God values every one of us serving, We will never achieve the design he had for us as his church. We simply won't be who God created us to be. And that's why, if you're following, we value every person serving because it's how God designed it to be. This isn't just like our value. Oh, isn't that nice? Cherry Hills values every person serving. This is God's value. It's how he designed it. It's how he designed his church with a capital C to function. God wants to unleash the church in this world. He wants it to take ground in this world for the kingdom. And yet that won't happen until we realize is only once every person is serving. Can we achieve God's goal and purpose for us? So let's unpack this idea of every person being a minister a little bit. This might have been new news to you. I'm a minister. I'm a priest. What are you talking about? So let's do a little background here, a little context. If you have a Bible with you this morning, would you take it and turn it to Acts chapter 2? If you're just getting used to where things are in your Bible, Acts is about four-fifths of the way back. It's in the New Testament. We are looking at chapter 2. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. We always provide some in the seat in front of you there or behind you if you're in the front row, and you can find Acts chapter 2 on page 758. Now, while you're turning there, let me just give you some quick history, a history lesson. Where do we get to this idea that all of us are ministers? For any of you who might have taken up the challenge we give every year to read through the Bible in a year, how many of you are reading through the Bible in a year? I'm just curious. How's that going? Oh, great. (laughs) You must be in Leviticus, I understand, right? (laughs) Well, you come really quickly to understand when you start reading through the Old Testament that there were certain people only that could have access to God, right? When God uh, selected a certain tribe, the tribe of the Levites, from that tribe he selected a group known as priests. And it was these priests that served as the mediators between God and the people. In fact, if you're following on your notes, in the Old Testament, priests served as go-betweens. They served as go-betweens. You know what I mean by that? Like, because sin entered into the world, God was a holy God, we could no longer have the kind of direct access to God that God intended us to have with him. It's what he ultimately wanted. And so what God did is he set up this system where priests were established so that people could get to God through them. So in other words, if you wanted to bring an offering to God, you would give that to the priest, and the priest would give it on your behalf. If you wanted to ask for forgiveness for sins, you would bring an animal, and God would sacrif- or the priest would sacrifice that on your behalf. This is the system that was set up. The priest functioned as a mediator, a go-between, and this is why. We have books like Leviticus and Numbers where you know, God lays out very carefully the role of the priest as compared to the role of the people. How do they make sure they're clean When they are serving as priests, if they're going to be these mediators, there's certain things they need to do to make sure that they're holy, that they're set apart, that they're able to do those things. Now, maybe the clearest picture of this is found on the Day of Atonement, which was really the highlight of the Jewish calendar, right? This was the one day of the year when the high priest, who was like the Michael Jordan of priests, got to enter into the holy of holy places in the temple. This happened one time a year, right? And in the holy of holy place, this high priest would offer a sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of the people. In other words, he offered this sacrifice as a way to restore the relationship between God and the people. Just the high priest could do this just one time a year. So listen, if I could sum this whole idea up for you, here's what I'd say on your notes. Priests were chosen... They were set apart by God, chosen by God, to do the work of ministry. Now, here's the key for the people. For the people. The people weren't allowed to do it themselves. They didn't have direct access to God. And, friends, that is how it worked for centuries. That was a system until one day, in stepped Jesus. And if you were here last year, we learned in our series in Hebrews, he became our great high priest. In his once and for all sacrifice, he turned the religious system completely upside down, right? He turned it upside down in his death, in his resurrection. And one of the things we don't talk a lot about is in his ascension, he took his place on the throne in all glory and all power. He sat down. And what happened? Well, that brings us to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they, the disciples of Jesus, were all together in one place. Pentecost was another holiday in the Jewish calendar. So here they are. You've got to picture the scene. The disciples, Jesus is gone. He's ascended into heaven. He's taken his place as the great high priest. Here they are in this upper room. They're scared to death because Jesus is left. They don't know what to do. Verse 2. Would you read verse 2 and 3 out loud on your notes with me? It says... Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Verse 4, I'll read. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now, pause. Let's just get a picture of what's going on here on this Jewish holiday called Pentecost, there's a bunch of non-priestly disciples of Jesus gathered together in an upper room, afraid for their life. They have no purpose, they have no mission, and they certainly have no power to carry out the command Jesus had just given them to go into the world and make disciples of all people. But then all of a sudden, God's spirit shows up. God invades the room, and we're told here, the only way to describe it, it was like a mighty rushing wind, and something like tongues of fire began to land on each people. What is God trying to tell us here? I mean, what took place? Jesus ascends to heaven, takes his place in authority, and this takes place. What's going on? Well, I think the wind is simply a way to describe that there is something new. It's a brand new day in in, in, in for the life of God's people, right? There's a new power that's going to be at play. More significant for me though is the fire. You see, if you have read through the Old Testament, when God shows up somewhere in his manifest presence, how does that form take place? It's fire. It's inapproachable fire. When God led the nation of Israel out of slavery, he led them through a pillar of fire. God's manifest presence. So let's just take the scene in here. Let's imagine this is happening to us. We're gathered. We're scared out of our wits. Jesus told us to go make disciples. I have no ability to go make a disciple. All of a sudden, this giant fireball comes into our midst. What does that mean? God's presence is here. His manifest presence is here. Now it does something that none of us would ever expect to happen. It separates, and a little bit of the fire lands on every one of our heads. One of our heads. Now, I can't emphasize enough what that means. This means that every person, not just the priests, every person who is a disciple of Jesus Christ gets full access to God's presence and power. If the fire in the Old Testament represented God's manifest glory, what do you think it means here? It means it's not just going to be localized to one place anymore. The fire didn't rest on Peter's head, just Peter. It didn't just go to James's head. What did it do? It separated and went to everybody. Everybody got a part of the flame. So that means if this happened today, my flame would not be bigger than yours. Jeff's flame would not be bigger than yours. This story is so significant for two reasons. Number one, in Jesus, we now all have direct access to God. If you're following, in Jesus, we now all have direct access to God. Good news, huh? You don't have to go through me to have a relationship with God, you don't have to go through a priest. You can come directly to the throne of God in all confidence, and he will pour out his mercy and grace. We don't need a go-between anymore. No longer just a select few empowered to do the work of ministry. We all have direct access to God. Second, Second important thing here, if you're following that, is in Jesus, we now all possess the full measure of God's Spirit. In other words, if you are a Christ follower, instead of just a few priests doing all the spiritual stuff, God has created something new. It's called the church. It's called the church, and each of us, as a part of the church have the full measure of God's power, the full measure of God's spirit. You know, when I first got here, one of my pet peeves, I've been here for about 12 years now and I used to play on the church's softball team. I still play with some guys. I play basketball, you know. Before we would play, we would always pray, right? Help us have good attitudes. Now the joke was, who has to do the prayer? The pastor, right? And so I would get on the guys like, listen, you don't need me to pray every time we play a softball game. You've got the full flame you got the same flame I do. So why don't you pray? And now they, now they make me pray every time just because they know that it actually uh, bugs me. Uh, but that's the key, friends. We've all been given direct access to God. And we've all been given the full measure of God's spirit if we are in Christ. Okay? And he created this new thing, which is what we are, called the church. Now, to understand how God designed us now to function. I mean, that's that's why we're all ministers. Now, how should we function that way? I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 12. This is really the main text I wanted to focus on with you this morning. So if you're in Acts, just start turning to the right. You'll get to Romans. And 1 Corinthians is right after uh, the book of Acts. We're looking at chapter 12. And if you have the black Bible that you're using, you can find this on page 799. How... Did God design this church full of ministers to function? How did he design us to function? 1 Corinthians 12 verse 12. Just as a body though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. So kind of cool here Paul is using an analogy to describe the church. What's the analogy? A human body. If you're falling on your notes, Paul uses the human body to describe the church's design. And he says, In a human body, you know this, you've got one. There are many parts to your body, but put all those parts together and it makes up what? Your body. I mean, I have ears, I have eyes, I have some hair, I have feet, I have knees. I mean, I have all these things, but when you put all those things together, what does it make? It makes my body. And Paul says that's how God designed the church. All these parts, that's us, coming together to form one body. Verse 13: For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, in other words, there's no more spiritual class, special people, we're all level at the foot of the cross, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Who was given the spirit? all right there's no special classes of Christians you either have the Holy Spirit or you don't and you get the Holy Spirit when you invite Christ into your life like we saw testimonies today about I want to make a quick comment here, too, before I move on. One thing I want to be sure that we say, because this is one of our values as well as a church, not written, but when I talk about the body of Christ, I would hate for you to leave this morning and think what I really mean by that is simply what goes on inside of these walls at Cherry Hills, right? That's a body with a lowercase b. We're talking about the body with a capital B. The body of Christ goes out into this world. It goes out into this community. Yes, we have a localized body. And we want to be the best local body that we can be. But we think much bigger than that, right? God is about his kingdom, not just about churches. That's why we pray for other churches. That's why we partner with other churches. They're a part of the body. In fact, I always say to people, don't think after this message that what I'm asking you or what we're asking you is you have to start doing something. You have to serve somewhere inside of these churches' walls. That is not what we think at all. We think that the body of Christ can extend anywhere in this world. That's why we partner with other ministries like downtown, Washington Street Mission, Contact Ministries. That's why we partner with missionaries around the world. The body of Christ can't be localized to one place. Yeah. I've even had meetings with people who feel really guilty because they're not serving. And I remember one lady in particular, this was after a network class. We do a consultation afterwards, and she just felt guilty. I'm not serving enough. And so we started talking. I asked her the questions like, well, what's your spiritual gift? And she said, teaching. She was a teacher, and she was given the spiritual gift of teacher. She taught in a, in a public school. Okay, well, what's your passion? Kids. Uh, okay. And what are you doing? I'm teaching kids in a public school. Great. Be the body of Christ in that public school. You don't have to think, now you got to do something else at the church's walls. Be who God has called you to be in the place he has called you to be, okay? So we're talking about body with a capital B, right? Inside these walls, yeah, we have internal organs. We need people to be serving inside of these walls, but we also have external organs. We've got fingers that wanna touch our community and touch our world. Verse 14, even so the body is not made up of one part but of many. Now if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. By the way, if you don't think the Bible is kind of funny, this was kind of funny right here. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. That would be a little disgusting, little eyes walking around everywhere, right? (laughs) If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Paul, in a humorous vein, is getting his point across, right? Every part has a different role to play, but they can't play their roles unless they're connected to the larger body. You can't have a bunch of eyes and ears and hands running around like rogues. They need to be connected as a unit. That's when the church functions at its strongest. Verse 18 But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Again, making the same point again, right? All the church needs all the various parts of the body in order to function as a body. Paul now looks at it from a negative viewpoint in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. All the parts of the body need one another, right? There's no such thing as a super pastor who can do everything. The body is functioning best when every part is playing the role they play. Now, there's, sometimes there are upfront roles and sometimes there are behind-the-scene roles, right? In verses 22 and 26, that's what Paul goes on to say, right? There's going to be some people who are serving the body behind the scenes. You won't even know what they're doing. Do we need those parts? Yeah. We desperately need those parts if the church is going to function the way it's going to function. Do we need the upfront parts? Do we need people to teach and speak? Yeah, if we want to be the body God has called us to be. We need all those parts working together. Now, read verse 27 out loud with me. It's kind of the summation of this whole thing. It's on your notes. It says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So if you're following, every person is vital for the body to function properly. How did God design his church with a bunch of ministers? And every one of them is important. It's vital if we are to function the way God has designed us to be. Now, Mike Bro shares a really silly illustration about this I want to share with you just to kind of get this point home to make sure we, we don't forget this. So in this story, Mike tells about how the, all the big animals in God's kingdom challenge the little animals in God's kingdom to a football game. And so the little animals, because they didn't want to lose face, they they took them up. They took them up on this offer. And so the football game starts, and it is a slaughter. The big animals, I mean, how are you going to stop the lion, right? So these these little animals have no chance. And by halftime, the score is 52 0 for the big animals. And so the little animals go into the locker room. They feel totally defeated. They got to go back out for another half of this beatdown. And they come out, they kick the ball off, when all of a sudden the tiger. He's ready to catch the ball, but out of nowhere, something just flies and smacks him. The tiger drops the ball, fumble in the end zone. There's this big pile, there's this big scrum, and they start pulling all the animals off of the scrum, and at the bottom of the pile, on top of the football, there's a caterpillar. (laughs) And all the little animals gather around him and said, are you the one who hit the tiger that hard? Yeah, that was me. Are you the one who caused the fumble? Yep, that was also me. And here you are on top of the football, scoring our first touchdown. Yep, here I am. Where were you at? Ha- or where were you in the first half? And the caterpillar looked up at him and said, "I was getting my ankles taped." <laughs> if you don't get it, ask your neighbor because I see some of you are like, uh oh. Now listen, the whole point of that, there is a point. If we sit out, if we just think, oh, I'm just a caterpillar and I have no role to play, the whole team suffers. The whole team suffers. The caterpillar had gifts. The ca- caterpillar had something to bring to the team. And friends, these verses tell us that God didn't give us access to himself. He didn't give us the full measure. He didn't give you. If you are a follower of Christ, the full measure of his spirit, just so we would come together on Sunday mornings and have a big worship service. Is that important? Yeah. But it's not what God designed the church. He wants his church to take ground in this world for his kingdom. Every part matters if we're going to do that. And If we're not playing our role, the body isn't functioning the way God designed it. I just think it's beautiful the way God designed his church, don't you? As a body. Every person serving. There's no top-down approach. There's no pastor or priest doing everything, doing all the works of the ministry. God wants us all to play our role. That means you might be a brand new Christian, and He wants you serving. You might be a Christian for 50 years, He wants you serving. You might not think you're smart, He wants you serving. You might think you're really smart, you gotta be careful. He wants you serving with a humble attitude. You might be a caterpillar, you might be a tiger. He wants all of us serving. Our flames are all the same. So what happened? Where did the church lose sight of this design that God had for his church? I mean, why did my dad think he had to be super pastor? Well, basically, along the lines, I think what happened is that the church decided it was easier to hire a few professionals to do the work of ministry, right? It was just easier. Now, there's no question that pastors, here I am, I'm a pastor. There's no question that I have a unique role to play in the body of a church. Jeff, all the pastors here, we have a role to play in the church. It doesn't mean that we're not supposed to be a part of this body. And yet I still have people who come to church and say, why are you asking us to get involved? Isn't that what we pay you for? Actually, according to Ephesians chapter four, you know what you pay me for? One of the things you pay me for is to quip you for the works of ministry. Read it. That's one of the roles of pastors is to equip the saints for works of ministry. But tragically, this attitude still pervades so many churches today, right? That's why we pay you. And the result of this is that pastors burn out at an alarming rate. Did you know it's one of the most burned out professions in the United States? And sadder than that, even to me, Is that so many people sit in churches week after week after week and they feel unfulfilled? They're like, this is it. This is what God designed for me to come to a worship service for an hour on Sunday. There's gotta be more. Well, there is. There's a whole lot more. There's a whole lot more. The best illustration I've ever heard of this, you all know what this is? It's a sponge. What does a sponge do? soaks up water. It cleans, right? It's supposed to clean things. So what would happen if I were to put this sponge in a bowl of water right now and leave it there for an hour? What would it do? It would saturate with water, right? It would fill up with water. How long do you think that would take? Not too long. Now, if I left it there for two hours, would more water enter into it? Three? Four? Okay. Now, I think this is a perfect picture of how so many people are viewing the church today. We live in a day and age where we have more resources, more access to knowledge about God, and so we're like these sponges, and we just soak it in. We sit in those Bible studies. We come to church. We go to Sunday school. These are all good things. Don't hear me wrong. We are learning more and more and more. We are saturating ourselves with the word of God. Amen. But at some point, what do we have to do? We've got to wring this thing out you know how God designed that to happen? By giving our lives away by serving. And we're ready to take more in. And then we give it back out. And we take more in and we give it back out. This is the design of God's church. And so the question remains, how? How can we go about being the body God has designed us to be? How can you be the minister the minister who serves in the role God has called you to serve. Well, to answer that, let's look back now at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 12. Verse 1 says, Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now wait just a minute. I'll just be honest with you. I'll make a confession to you. I had never heard growing up in church. I grew up in church my whole life. I would never heard of this thing Paul just said that I shouldn't be uninformed about called the gifts of the Spirit. And I know for a fact there are many of you this morning, this might be the first time you ever heard of such a thing. There are gifts of the Spirit. What? What does that mean? Now, when I was at church, I heard often about the need for volunteers to fill slots. But I'd never heard that God had given me a unique gift or unique gifts that he wanted me to serve the body of Christ with. But Paul commands us here, don't be uninformed about this. The word is actually, don't be ignorant about these things. Look down at verse 4. It says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. And now read verse 7 out loud with me on your notes. It says, Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. In other words, spiritual gifts are given to each who? Believer. And now Paul is going to go on and talk about some of the examples of the gifts that God gives. We know for a fact this is not an exhaustive list. I want to read uh, some of these together just to get you an idea of what we're talking about. But there's other places in Scripture that talk about other gifts. So this isn't like the list. These are some of the gifts. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, the gift of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge, the gift of knowledge, by, the same, by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith. Did you know that faith can be a, a gift? I know all of us profess faith in Christ if we are followers. What I'm talking about, though, have you met those people who have the spiritual gift of faith, right? They do not waver. They are confident in no matter what they are facing. That's a gift they've been given by God. Where was I? By the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits or discernment. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues or languages. And to another, to interpret those. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Now, there is a lot going on in those verses right now. We don't have time to unpack all of that, but if you'd like to unpack them, join us for network. It starts on Wednesday, February 18th. That's my plug uh, for you. What I do want to do, though, is talk about the big picture. What is Paul, what is God's word uh, saying here overall? And I think it's really three things. The first thing, here's a question. To whom does Paul say the spiritual gifts are given? Number one, who, who are the gifts given to? What does it say? To each one you just circle that on your message notes there? I think I have that verse. Just circle to each one, to each one, to each who, if you're following. Every Christian has been given unique spiritual gifts, or at least one gift. Now, I could preach on this. I know this from experience. I could preach on that one point for the next 45 minutes, and there would still be someone, a genuine follower of Christ, who would walk out of this room this morning and go, well, I didn't get one. I don't know how else to say this, but the each in each one includes the person sitting in your seat. It means you. If, if you've given your life over to Christ, if you're his disciple, you've been given at least one spiritual gift. One supernatural talent that God, when you allow him to, will infuse it with power. You've been given the flame. You've been given the full flame of God's power. Friends, I can't tell you how important it is for you to believe that. And not only to believe it, but begin to learn about that gift and to develop that gift and to sharpen that gift and to use that gift. To use that gift. This is why, again, we do offer network. If you've never heard of this stuff, take the class. Sign up after the service. Second thing I want you to notice is the source of these gifts. And I know this is sort of like a duh, but... According to verse 11, where do these gifts come from? Where do the spiritual gifts come from? From the Holy Spirit. If you're following, the Holy Spirit is the source of our gifts. Now, why take time to make sure we get this? Why am I telling you this, making sure we're doing this? Because it means there can be no pride at all in our gifts. I can't be puffed up because of the gifts I have because they weren't something I did. They were God's gift to me, and the same is for you. You can't have pride because of the gifts God has given you. Did you know in Greek, the word for gifts here is the same root word as the word grace? How cool is that? These gifts are God's grace to us, and so when we refuse to use them, when we refuse to develop them and learn about them and put them to use for the body of Christ, we are essentially saying no thanks to God's grace. They're not earned, they're given. Who are they given by? God's spirit. And that leads us to the third thing we see in these verses, which is why. Why did God give us these gifts? Well, if you've taken network, you can probably say this in your sleep because we repeat this so much. But here it is if you're falling on your notes. Spiritual gifts are given to glorify God and edify the body. Does that sound familiar to some of you? Glorify God and edify the body. So listen, look up. That means... That the gifts that God has given me are not for me. They've been given to me so that I can give them back to him as a sacrifice of praise, as a sacrifice of offering, so that he may be glorified from my life and that the church may benefit. That the body of Christ, it's for the common good, as Paul says here, to glorify God and edify the body. Now, let me ask you, what about you? Why were your gifts given you? For yourself, the gifts God has given you were given so that you could glorify Him with your life and that you could edify me and everybody else in this room and in God's kingdom. So, quick review here as we close who gets spiritual gifts? Each one, each Christian, okay? Who gave you these gifts? Why is that important? Because we can't serve with pride, right? And finally, what were these gifts given to us? Let's say it together. To glorify God and edify the church. Friends, can you even imagine what it would look like if a church really lived this out? If there really was a community that believed with a healthy sense of humility that I am a person who has been equipped to serve. God has given me everything I need in order to serve the purposes he has for the body. I can glorify him and edify the body with my life. Nothing would stop a church like that. Nothing. And isn't that what Jesus ultimately had in mind for us? That nothing could stop us. In Matthew 16, he would say these famous words to Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my, what? And what about this church does Jesus say? He says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He has supernaturally empowered his church with his presence, with his power, a mighty rushing wind, the flames of God, so that nothing can stop us. Nothing can stop us when we take this seriously. Friends, we weren't redeemed just so we could stay in the upper room. We were redeemed with a special purpose, and each of you plays a part in us fulfilling that purpose. So as we close, here's the question I'll leave with you. Will I glorify God and edify the body by serving with my gifts? I know some of you like to put away notes, but can I close with a story that really struck me this week? I really think this brings this whole thing home. In World War II, in the spring of 1940, Hitler's panzer divisions were mopping up French troops and preparing for a siege of Great Britain. The Dutch had already surrendered, as had the Belgians. The British army was basically, at this point, stuck on the coast of France. Germany was coming. They had no chance. And so the Navy was starting to figure out a way. How can we get all these troops out of here? Out of Dunkirk is where this took place. And they realized they only had enough room in their ships for about 17,000 men, and yet there were hundreds of thousands of British troops stuck here. And so the parliament began to prepare for the worst. I mean, this was going to be some heavy, heavy casualties. They just simply weren't able to get everyone off. They weren't going to be able to rescue all the troops. But then all of a sudden, one day, out of the fog, into the harbor, came a mishmash of different ships. There were tugboats. There were sailboats. Uh, In fact, one of the boats, just so you know I'm not making this up, was America's Cup Challenger Endeavor, manned by civilian sailors. All these different ships and these boats, these small boats, big boats, all these boats came to the rescue of these British soldiers, and they were able to rescue 338,000 men and return them to the shores of England. It was one of the most remarkable naval, naval operations in all of history. Listen, that's, That's the picture God has for his church. There's some big ships, there's some little ships, but every ship is important in fulfilling the rescue mission God has given us as a church in this world. Amen? Let's pray. God, first of all, we simply recognize that you are great, that you are brilliant. What an idea. Thank you that we now, each of us, have full access to you and we have the full measure of your spirit and of your power at work in us. Help us to be a church. Help us to be the body with a capital B that takes seriously, that doesn't stay uninformed about the gifts you've given us. That recognizes that we can only serve you in humility because these are truly gifts. And Lord, mostly let us be a church that glorifies you and edifies one another because that's the way you designed it to be. We pray this with hope and expectation in Jesus' great name, amen.